Hello and welcome to the Next Level Sunday interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. We have a good interview today from Blake Flayton, who is coming at us from Israel. Blake is a activist that has written for The Bulwark in the past about Israel and Jewish issues. He was a liberal campus activist at my alma mater, George Washington, and was speaking out about anti-Semitism that he saw among his peers, even among those within the progressive movement. So we talked about that. We talked about his experience in Tel Aviv, what he's seeing on the ground, the massive fuck-ups of the Bibi Netanyahu regime, the response from Joe Biden and others in America. It's a, it's a very good conversation. It was not what we were planning for this week, of course. I had to change the schedule. We had kind of a funny guest that hopefully we'll get to in the weeks ahead, but that to me just didn't feel appropriate given the horrors of, of what is happening in Israel. And in the meantime, I was also called in to uh, do the circus this week on Showtime. And so we had to move around our schedule a little bit. We're taping this on Wednesday morning. And so obviously there'll be events that occur in the coming days. But I, I think that this is a evergreen conversation that you'll enjoy. If you're listening to this on Sunday morning or even on Monday, you can get the app, tune into Showtime, 7 o'clock Eastern. I will uh, give you a dispatch from Iowa and New Hampshire. We'll talk about the Republican race and how that has been or has not been impacted by Israel. It's a great show. Enjoy that. And we'll be back next week with more of a normal next level schedule. In the meantime, enjoy my friend Blake Flayton. It's a serious conversation. I think it's an important one, and we'll get to it after this. Hello, welcome back to the Next Level Sunday interview. I am here with Blake Flayton, who is live from Tel Aviv, and we'll get into Blake's backstory in a second. But first, brother, just uh, how are you doing? Give us an update for how things are for you. How's your mother, <laughs> et cetera? Yeah, I think uh, if you had my mother on, I think it would be a really different interview. <laughs> I'm good, given the circumstances. I think we all have a here in Tel Aviv, we all have a different definition as to what good is now. It means just not breaking down, not crying, you know, having a an okay handle on our emotions and mental health. So given the circumstances, given the situation, I guess I'm as okay as I can be. The city of Tel Aviv is very quiet. Most restaurants and shops and even just convenience stores are closed. Most services are down. And uh, most people know somebody who has either been sent to the front lines or actually I'll say everyone knows someone who has been sent to the front lines and most people know someone who has been impacted, either missing, held hostage or murdered. So this is definitely a national tragedy that we're all feeling the effects of. So you wrote for the Jewish Journal about your experience, written for the Bulwark before, so why I reached out to you. So just tell us about what your weekend was like kind of leading up to the attack, and then what it was like to experience having the city be under attack. For sure. So I like to describe the day before Saturday, last Friday, which feels like a lifetime ago already, as the perfect day in Tel Aviv. You know, it was a holiday weekend, so most people weren't worrying about going back to work in a couple of days. My friends and I went to go to the beach to drink and to have a good time. And we had a lovely Shabbat dinner that the night before. And so nothing was out of the ordinary. 
And then Saturday morning, of course, at around 7.30, I heard this loud boom explosion over my roof. And my roommate ran into my room to tell me that we were under attack. And then as I wrote in the Jewish journal, reality simply changed. We immediately went into the hallway where the stairs are in my apartment building. It doesn't have a formal bomb shelter because it's an older building. And of course, you know, we saw all of the neighbors there who had also just been woken up as well. And, you know, everyone is staring at their phones, trying to figure out what the hell is happening. And over the next couple of minutes, we realized the magnitude of what is happening and that this is not just a normal attack, an operation that we've seen in Israel countless times. This is a war. There's been terrorist infiltration and massacres. And then, you know, everything just went numb. I went over to my friend's house who uh, has an actual bomb shelter in her building. And we've been here ever since. So I've been staying at her place ever since. I just threw all my shit in a bag. And made a run for it. And now here we are five days later. Have you like reached everybody? You don't have anybody that you haven't accounted for in your life? So thank God I have nobody in my immediate circle who I'm close to who is missing. But that can't be said for a whole lot of people in this country right now. Yeah. I, I know people who are close to my friends who have died and who are still missing. Yesterday, I went to a press conference with four Israeli-American families who are still missing either a child or a parent. So it's affecting everybody. And of course, many of my friends have been sent to the front line in uniform. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just you know wanted to level set and check in first. But for folks who don't know Blake, I thought there'd be some value in kind of going back a little bit in time. So you're, you're American. And you went to GW. Uh, we both went to GW. We're not going to do our graduation years, but uh, we went to GW in the same <laughs> in the same epoch. And GW is such a political school, right? And you kind of have the background as Democrat, a liberal, and you go to GW. I'm sure, like many people, like excited to get into you know politics in some way or another. But mm-hmm. you kind of came into the public view because of what you saw on campus and what a lot of us have now seen this week who aren't on campus, which is the anti-Semitism coming from the left in particular. Uh, Obviously, there's right-wing anti-Semitism too. And you wrote about that. You wrote about your concerns about that. You organized around it. So, So why don't you just maybe give folks a little bit of that backstory? For sure. So you really hit the nail on the head. The GW is a very political school. I went there because I was interested in politics and wanted to work in liberal left-wing spaces, as I had done all throughout high school growing up in the States. So I went to GW, and I like to describe it as a place where everybody wants to be president. And I immediately involved Or everybody myself. wants to be David Axelrod, either president or, that, or exactly. you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can talk about that for three hours. But I involved myself in all of these different progressive organizations and progressive spaces I've worked on Capitol Hill for my congressman. I was at a protest every other weekend, whether it was on campus or just in D.C. in general. And basically, I started my career in commentary on Jewish issues and Israel-related issues when I began writing about the blatant anti-Semitism that I experienced in these spaces. And it took a while for me to understand that what I was hearing from the people who I had called friends and the people who I assumed were comrades in the fight were not criticism of Israel. They were not political. They were not even out of sympathy for Palestinians. 
It was classic anti-Semitic tropes that have followed the Jewish people for a millennia, repackaged and repurposed to fit the, the current zeitgeist. And the current zeitgeist on American universities right now is a very uh, hyper-identitarian, hyper-left-wing narrative of the world and lens in which to view global affairs. And unfortunately, and I believe unjustly, Israel is not only on the wrong side of that ledger, but Israel is the epitomizing entity of which all of this politics is organized against. And, you know, I kept writing about it and I have stayed very on top of anti-Semitism on college campuses since my days at university. And, you know, with a day like yesterday, when you see all of these students for justice in Palestine chapters, and not only students for justice in Palestine chapters, but, you know, at Harvard, you have 34 student organizations signing a letter that places all of the responsibility on Israel for what happened. And you have the president of the NYU Bar Association saying victory to Palestine. And you have students at Columbia saying glory to the martyrs, example after example. It feels like validation. It feels like vindication. But from what Jewish college students have been trying to get a lot more people to realize over the past couple of years, but it in no way feels good. It's incredibly depressing. We hope people will wake up to it now that there is justification for such like abject horror. We're optimistic that this could be a turning point in how Jewish college students and their stories can be received, but we're not entirely sure. Yeah, I got to admit, I was I was sympathetic to your perspective, of course. I thought as if I didn't believe that it wasn't happening on campuses, but the extent of it, right, and the pervasiveness and maybe the threat, it's tough, right? When you're off campus and it's been a while, you're trying to decide, like, ah, is this like eight agitators, right? Is this people just trying to trigger their classmates. I don't, you know, I took some radical views in college just for shits. <laughs> you know what I mean? To like piss off people yeah. in class, right? And so like oh, trying to balance that? that. Yeah, well, what was that a rocket? That was a big boom over over us. Jeez. That was a big boom. Um, you know, and then you see yesterday and this week one thing that, that struck me when you're talking about your weekend, you know, you're talking about going to the beach, literally in the GW Students for Justice in Palestine, our alma mater, in their statement, they said that any Israeli or traveler who is, quote, lounging on our occupied beaches is an aggressor, quote, unquote, and not really subtext. The text there is that their murder, their slaughter is part of some resistance fight that is worthy. I mean, that is sick shit. And that is alarming. And I, I wonder, A, what your response was, or what your thought was when you're seeing this. I guess it was not the surprise that my thought was. And and just talk about the pervasiveness. You know, like, is this a small cohort? Is this the median student? I think in, in order to answer that question, we have to take a look actually off the campus and to the Palestinian cause itself, which, as we have been proven over the last couple of days, is Ideologically, of course, there are different details such as Islamism rather than race science in its European essence. But in its essence, this ideology is Nazism. And it is the most barbaric and inhuman form of anti-Semitism that the world has ever known. And it just so happens that that doesn't resonate very well with Western, respectable, liberal ears. 
And the Palestinians know this. Certainly Palestinian partisans internationally know this. The Iranian regime knows this. And very far left-wing thinkers and academics and intellectuals across the world know this as well. And so over the last couple of decades, really, ever since the 70s, we have seen the masking of the true intentions of the Palestinian liberation apparatus, if you will, varying you know organizations. We have seen them disguise their true intentions with the language of social justice and the language of human rights. And also West's plane, which is, you know, a play on the word mansplain yeah, sure. that is coined by Dr. Anat Wilf, former member of Knesset, West's planing away what the people on the ground are really saying. So when the people on the ground are really saying, we want death to all Jews, we're going to rape them, murder them, set their homes on fire and destroy Israel. In the West, it's sanitized into saying Palestinians just want self-determination, Palestinians just want an end of the occupation, Palestinians just want to lift the siege on Gaza or the blockade of Gaza. And so to millions of progressives in Western countries, this all sounds like very digestible rhetoric and very reasonable proposals and demands, especially when you impose racial relations that we have in the United States or in Europe onto Israel and construct you know, the Jews in Israel as the white people, the oppressors and the Palestinians as the people of color, the oppressed. That whips up a lot of anger and a lot of resentment against Israel and Jews in your midst. And it's well-funded. It is broad. It affects so many different universities and college, big and small, public and private. And this ideology the people who are pushing it know that these people are not going to get rid of these beliefs and grow out of them once they graduate school. They are going to enter all of our institutions, politics, media, culture, law, I mean, you name it, and bring this, this sanitized Nazi ideology into these respectable places. We've already seen it happen, which is the backing, of course, behind these statements. Yeah. I want to get, kind of get back to the U.S. response, but I, I want to level set a little bit because this is really kind of an intra-left and even intra-liberal, and I'm even using liberal as a small L, kind of including my people, the never-Trumpers, right? Like an intra-liberal dispute and like fissure, right? Because some people, I think, could listen to that answer and say, oh man, this sounds like a right-wing Zionist whatever trying to impugn folks that are fighting for, for justice. But like, that's not really quite right, right? I and mean, I think that an interesting thing about you and, and many, many others in Israel and here, American Jews, there are a lot of liberal folks who really are unhappy with Bibi, really unhappy with the government, yet at the same time recognize this threat. So talk about how that is manifesting in this moment. And I know you were doing activism in Israel before this all happened about the quote-unquote reforms that Bibi was putting forth. So just kind of talk about that fissure and, you know, where you kind of fit in that world. Of course. I mean, one of the reasons why Saturday was so dramatic is it was a complete 180 shift in what, you know, the discourse was about in Israel. I moved to Israel last year, almost exactly last September, and more or less since last September, every day here has been consumed with anti-government activism. As I'm sure most listeners know, there have been major protests almost every week. In fact, 
every week, multiple times a week in Israel since the election of this current coalition in our parliament. There has been mass civil unrest. There has been reservists not showing up to duty. There has been strikes from high-tech workers and nurses and other sectors of the army. It's just been madness here, the conflict between the right and the left, between the religious and the secular, between different factions in Israeli society. And that's what we thought we all had to worry about at this moment, was the judicial overhaul and the potential dismantling of Israeli democracy. And we were really focused on the radicals in the government who hold the most detestable far-right racist views that I think a Jew or Israeli can have. It's disgraceful. And then Saturday, the entire country came together in a split second and realized that we have one objective right now, and that's to win, first and foremost, to defeat Hamas, to respond with strength to what happened in the South, and to make sure that we are under no threat from future attacks. However, all of that energy that has been building up for the last year, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Israelis, you know, taking to the streets to make their voices heard against the government, that's not going to go away. And when the dust settles from all of this, and and I really hope it will be soon, I'm not sure if that's too optimistic, there will be the most, I'd say, vicious (laughs) and necessary inquiry against the decisions of this government that led to the disaster that we have now. In 1973, 50 years ago this week, was the Yom Kippur War when Israel lost thousands of soldiers, combatants, in a surprise attack that wasn't really quite a surprise attack. There was sort of deliberation in the army. And the fallout from that lack of decision-making shifted the political trajectory of Israel forever. The Labor Party that was in power in Israel since the founding of the state lost an election in 1977 to the first time Menachem Begin's Likud party, which then began to dominate Israel off and on for the next several decades up until this moment. So we can only imagine the political shift that's going to occur now. And this will be Benjamin Netanyahu's legacy. During the protest movement, we were all convinced that his legacy was going to be the failed judicial overhaul, the dividing of Israeli society, and, you know, the corruption and the fanaticism at the very tops of our society. But now we realize it's going to be even worse and that his egotism and narcissism, and it's it's going to be remembered for this, this horrible day. It's an interesting answer because right, you said that everybody comes together in a second and that, you know, I, I can't say this from New Orleans, right? But that seems true. But this is different than that, right? There's the 9-11 parallel, speaking of narc- egocentrism, where, you know, <laughs> Americans have American-centrism, so everything's about us. But <laughs> there are these parallels to 9-11, right? This is Israel's 9-11, even though like there are more deaths on a per capita basis and hostages. Obviously, there are a lot of differences. It just in the surprise nature of it and the wake-up call nature of it. But Eventually, there ends up being criticisms of Bush and commissions that look into all this and et cetera, but not for a while. You already see in the Israel newspapers and the Israel commentariat, like while the people are coming together, there is palpable frustration with Netanyahu's government, not just because of the uh, judicial 
nonsense that you guys had been protesting about, but because of just the lack of preparation. I, I mean, this feels like it should have been BB's, like this is BB's whole brand. Right? Yeah. Like Mr. Security, strength, preparedness for something like this to be caught so off guard. There's some reports that there were warnings. It feels like very quickly there is going to be much recrimination on that point. There is absolutely going to be. And again, the two things are actually mutually exclusive. Right now, the Israeli people are coming together in a way that just reveals the absolute best of our society and our civilization as the world's only Jewish state and what that really means. There's donation drives and volunteer service all over Tel Aviv and all across the country. 300,000 people have been mobilized. People are caring for each other and raising millions of dollars from here and abroad. It's just incredible. that is separate from this government. And by the way, as we're doing this interview now, there is news that Benny Gantz, who leads one of the major opposition parties, and Netanyahu have accepted terms to an agreement that would form an emergency wartime unity government that is said to be sworn in tonight. And so the ball is already rolling. The ball is already moving. People know that this is going to get intense blowback from a unified public because this war, unlike news of the judicial overhaul, if you can even compare the two, has impacted everyone with the same outrage and the same brokenheartedness that we didn't even know was possible a couple months ago. And so there will be. And uh, there's going to be very interesting commentary when when the time comes for a proper inquiry. I mean, obviously... (laughs) There's still hostages, blood is still being shed, right? So it's like, it's impossible to do this now. But is there any sense there for like how, you know, they could have just been so blindsided by this? It just feels unimaginable that something at this scale would have just been absolutely missed. So the truth is, to answer that question is we simply do not know. We have yet to have a compelling, rock-hard story that kind of lays out what exactly went wrong, how exactly all of this was missed. Because remember, this wasn't just one unit that wasn't called to duty one morning. We have supposedly a smart fence, an unbreakable barrier in between the sovereign state of Israel and Gaza. And on top of that, we have watchtowers and drones and security cameras and soldiers. And then we're supposed to have the police. And then we're supposed to have a front line near the Gaza border all the time. And then, of course, first responders didn't show up to the kibbutzim that were under direct attack from terrorists for hours on Saturday morning. Hours. Civilians had to defend themselves and their families with no weapons. These are kibbutzim near the Gaza border. They're the most peace-loving. What I keep seeing that word. So as a Gentile from America, I don't really know what a kibbutz yeah. is. <laughs> I, I was familiar with that word as a gathering where people chat. No. But it, it seems like it has a different meaning <laughs> than, I, than I realized. So there's like the historical nerdy characterization, and then there's like the current characterization. Kibbutzim are small Israeli communities that have been a staple of the Zionist vision since long before the state of Israel was established. They are kind of the product of socialist Zionism because they were started as completely socialist agricultural communities where everyone shares the resources, everyone shares the wealth, and the community provides for the community's defense. A lot of kibbutzim are still very much based on the socialist model. They're very predicated on oneness with nature, especially in the desert where these attacks happen, you know, oneness with the Negev, which is a very sacred place in the Israeli imagination. 
And we treasure them because they're sort of this prime example of the goodness of Israeli society. Kibbutzim are the heart and soul of the country, I believe, in a lot of ways. Our best and brightest come from Kibbutzim. And they're filled with people, traditionally very left-wing, peace-loving people who provide this wonderful atmosphere for children and this wonderful atmosphere for innovation and service to Israel. And, you know, we heard a couple days ago that one of the women who is suspected to have been brought into Gaza did work to provide medical care to Palestinians living in Gaza during wartime. That's your image of what a typical kibbutznik in Israel is. And she has been taken hostage. So these people had to defend themselves with nothing. Mm. And there was just mass slaughter. And the security forces didn't show up for hours. And so this was a, a domino effect of complete failure and complete incompetency. And it's just horrific. <laughs> There's nothing else to say. I don't know if this will lead to any reflection on the right of wall efficacy, but anyway, that's for another time. On American stuff, I think that certainly there has been some shocking false equivalencies of both sides, whatever you want to say, from some corners, Tlaib and, and even like Ed Markey. But Biden remarks yesterday were, astounding, in my opinion, maybe the best speech that he's given since his presidency. What is the view from Israel on the American response and Biden? And, and what's your take on you know how we've responded here? So I actually was watching this speech last night with a room full of Israelis um, on the couch. And, you know, they were mesmerized by his speech, to put it lightly. They were very uh, supportive of the president's words. And there was a general feeling not only in my own home when we were watching this, but across the Israeli world that this was a brilliant and much needed and reassuring statement of support. I would call it, yes, one of the best speeches of his presidency, and I would call it unprecedented in the heartfelt Zionism and belief in the importance of Israel that came across. And I think overall, of course, there's going to be you know people in Israel who prefer the previous administration more, but even sure. they, I think, can't deny that this is an important moment for us. Not a lot of sense there that Joe Biden is responsible for this attack, like Senator Tim Scott said, he's got <laughs> blood on his hands. I don't think any Israeli right now is blaming Joe Biden, of all people, for blood being spilled in our streets. Listen, I think that we ought to have an important and crucial conversation about Iran and about sure. democratic policy toward Iran, because there's no question that Iran is behind these attacks. Iran is orchestrating the motives of both Hezbollah and Hamas. And there is no question that perhaps we need a re-examining of priorities in the Middle East. Yeah. But again, I think most of that agitation has come from American right-wingers right. who are trying to use this moment to score a point rather than sympathize with people on the ground. Sure. And there are plenty of policy reflections. Even, I, I think, so the Trump administration at times eased up on Iranian sanctions. And I think there are arguments for that. But to me, I think if you are to criticize the Biden administration, a more apt criticism maybe than the $6 billion is... It seems as if I think everybody was hoping that if they just stopped paying attention to the Palestine-Israel dispute, that maybe it was just going to get quiet and go away. Right. I mean, I, there were you know, recent speeches from people in the Biden administration about the Mideast policy, and 
I, I, this conflict isn't even brought up. Right. Right. Uh, you know, there's a focus on the Saudi deals uh, and the Abraham Accords and all these other areas. And I think that the fact that we had had a brief period of relative quiet in the conflict, I did think led to some naivete and kind of a lack of focus on trying to reach some sort of solution. For sure. I mean, and there is political context to that as well. What the Trump administration did that even, I have to say, American liberals, especially Israeli liberals, but even American liberals began to understand was that, and this is Netanyahu's platform, this is his whole concept of organizing the world and organizing the conflict. He thinks, and the Abraham Accords were a sort of vindication of this idea, that if you make peace with the larger Arab world against the axis of Iran, then the Palestinians will have no choice but to accept self-determination within the parameters that Israel and the international community allows it. And again, after we saw Israel sign peace accords or normalization accords with the UAE and Bahrain and later in Sudan and later in Morocco, this seemed to be the way forward. This seemed to be the logical thinking that this was the way to go. We will isolate the Palestinians because the Palestinians have only been able to sustain their war against Israel and these constant terror attacks because they have had support from the outside Arab and then certainly Islamic world. And so we thought that if we cut off that support and we cut off that assurance that bigger and larger powers are going to have your back all the time, then they're not going to have a choice but to come to the table. That was the shift that the Abraham Accords brought about. And in fact, these events that have happened in Israel over the last couple of days, I will say strongly suspicious that they come as a reaction to the news that Israel and Saudi are on their way to normalizations because this is in some ways the Palestinians saying, you will, no. They know that this will be the end of their struggle because this will be if Israel and Saudi make peace, effectively the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict that has been going on since 1948. And they know that their support system, besides Iran, will be completely cut off. And they don't want this to happen, and they want the Saudis to stop it. And that's why they did this. So you can say in respect to the Biden administration, the Biden administration accepted this new conventional wisdom, like a lot of Israelis and liberals around the world did, Israeli liberals and liberals around the world. I don't think you can blame them. But I think after today's event, we realize that this is going to be actually more complicated than we thought. It's not the first option of the like Clinton-Obama years of make peace with the Palestinians and then peace with the Arab world will come after. And it's not the Trump doctrine and the Netanyahu doctrine of make peace with the Arab world and then peace with the Palestinians will come. It's not black and white. There's going to be a lot more complications in both directions. Yeah. To be honest, I chose my my naivete about the region. I had a lot of complaints about the Saudi-Biden normalization deal they were working on. But the response from Gaza, from Palestine, from Hamas, uh, you know, that unintended consequence was something that I hadn't even thought about. And several folks like you have heard make compelling case on that point over the past few days. We could do a whole podcast on... <laughs> Zionism and, you know, two-state solution and all that. So I I don't want to go totally down that rabbit hole. But, you know, I do think that there are going to be some listeners of this podcast, you know, some people that discover it that are also the left that are compelled by the view that maybe not the GW students for Palestine view that anybody sitting on a beach 
in Israel should be murdered because they're a colonizer or whatever, but might be sympathetic to the view that the Israeli state is engaging in an apartheid, that they are colonizers, that there is something fundamentally wrong with their existence in this whole model. I just, at the top level, wonder what your pushback would be or what message you'd have to those folks as, you know, they have intra conversations within liberal spaces, within progressive spaces where, you know, you've been having these discussions since since you were in college. Right. You know, every time a conflict breaks out, I think about the people who are going to be reading and listening to things about this conflict for the first time. And right. it's always like a oiva voi moment because what information are they going to see first that's going to probably dictate what lens they view the conflict through the next uh, couple of years. Look, this is a very simple question. This is a crucial question. You have to ask yourself and you have to ask the people around you in liberal spaces is do the Jews have the right to their own country with their own army, in part, not all, but in at least some of their ancestral homeland, where they trace their national and religious identity back to? That is the crucial question. If your answer to that is yes, because it is yes for most all people in the world, because most of our planet is divided into nation states where groups control their own destiny. If your answer is yes, then you're a Zionist and you support the state of Israel and its protection. That does not mean at all, as we have seen from the last year of Israeli protests against the government, which made the Israeli flag and, you know, national symbols like the Declaration of Independence and the IDF uniform, the symbol, the emblem of our protest against the far right insurgents in Israel. That does not mean you agree with all Israeli policy, of course, but it does mean that you're a Zionist. If you say no to those parameters of the Jews having self-determination in their ancestral homeland, then you are an anti-Zionist. And I want to stress very clear, there is no such thing as a non-violent, non-anti-Semitic anti-Zionism in the region of Israel-Palestine and the wider Middle East. The only time that anti-Zionism can carry an air of respectability and intellectual honesty, because it often invokes dreams of a binational utopia where Israelis and Palestinians have equal rights and we live together in a sort of John Lennon imagined universe, that only exists in Western academia and on the iPhones of college students. And this disconnect, I hope, from this latest conflict is being bridged here. That if you refuse to support the Jewish state, their right to a state, with all the politics away from it, their right to a state, then you are de facto sending your support to these people instead. Because these are the people who are actually on the ground pushing for your worldview. It's not Judith Butler firing rockets into Tel Aviv from Gaza right now. It's a Hamas terrorist who wouldn't think twice about killing you and your entire family. That is the discrepancy that we're up against right now. So then, okay, but what do you say to somebody that says, well, I guess then using those definitions, I'm a Zionist, but I am deeply angry by how the Israeli government has acted out the Zionism and treatment of Palestinians. Not everybody that lives in Palestine is okay with the actions of Hamas. And, you know, there has to be a way to view treatment of Palestinians through a social justice lens. What's your response to that? 
my response to that is bring me one. <laughs> bring me one Palestinian from the West Bank and or Gaza who before we get into a debate about Israel and Palestine and who has the right over which land and what things went on in history that dictates you know, where we are today, I want to have a conversation with a Palestinian who says to me within the first two minutes of the conversation, the Jewish people have a historic and ancestral right to part of this land and they have a right to national self-determination and national self-defense on this land. And all we, the Palestinians, want is a independent state of our own in the West Bank and Gaza. But the problem is, is there has yet to be one. You're looking at social media and commentary from the last couple of days and all of the people who are saying, this isn't what Palestinian resistance look like. We need an end to the occupation. This is about settlements. This is about the blockade. This is about the open air prisons. They're not Palestinian because the Palestinians have made very clear multiple times over the past several decades that the only thing that they desire is dead Jews and the eradication of a Jewish state, period. There has yet to be a movement in Palestinian civil society to reject this. Every single time that the Israeli government has tried to make peace, has tried to establish independent everything for Palestinians, it has been rejected and it has been met with violence and war. And look, I'm a peacenik. I'm an Israeli of the left. I believe wholeheartedly in the end of the settlement project and the establishment of the two-state solution. But hopefully more people around the world will see now how even the farthest left Israeli has a breaking point where you cannot negotiate people who are not even operating in the same universe as you. You're willing to give, they're only willing to take. Your passion here is so obvious. I, I just, I do wonder, I meant to ask this at the top, what was the draw to you, like the ancestral homeland? idea. Talk about that and like what brought you to where you are right now. Well, so um, I am not a very religious person at all. And Zionism, the concept of Zionism was first thought of and then enacted and then defended by predominantly secular Jews. Zionism came out of the tradition of the European Enlightenment that stopped placing so much emphasis on religion and faith and clergy doctrine. And that's how it started in the Jewish community. The Jewish community in the 1800s and the 1900s started looking at all of the anti-Semitism around them and started asking themselves, what are our rabbis doing for us? For 2,000 years, we have prayed and prayed to be restored to the homeland, to be restored to the place where we were kicked out 2,000 years ago. And yet we have not been able to make it happen. And we've only been met with violence along the way, year after year. We need a complete revolution, a rebellion in Jewish affairs. And that's where Jewish nationalism, Zionism springs up as a rebellion against the strict Jewish theology that mandated the following of commandments, the following of Torah as the primary way to be a Jew. Now, in our 21st century, I felt increasingly before I made Aliyah that the only way to express my Jewish identity was through religion, was through closeness to a faith, to God. And I just can't feel close to a God of which I do not believe. And therefore, Zionism serves as a sort of third way, quote unquote, for Jews to feel Jewish, for them to feel Jewish in the national sense, in the sense of belonging to a peoplehood, of a culture, of a history 
and all of the things that go along with it, language, customs, piece of land, without going to synagogue and without following the commandments of our God in the Old Testament, right? And that's what Israel offers to millions of Jews, both in Israel and around the world. Around the world, Jews connect to feeling Jewish by their Zionism, by the Israeli flag and the feelings of pride that they have in Israel. And that's ultimately why I decided to make Aliyah, because it offers, you know, the secular option, I like to call it. Are you planning on staying? Have you thought about all that in yes, light of this? I'm planning on staying for the for forever. I think these recent events have only strengthened that resolve. You know, I was supposed to go to New York this week for a big family event. My whole family was flying out there and I don't get to see them that often, but I canceled those plans yesterday because I just have to be here. I can't leave this community behind. It's in times like these, it's more crucial than ever to like the all the Israeliness. <laughs> if your mother was on this podcast, what would her answer to that question? <laughs> question oh, I don't even want to talk about my mother right now. My mother has been a uh, Listen, my mother is going to be fine. The real question is, how are the mothers of this country going to be even in the next two weeks, two months, two years? There's going to be millions of parents and children who have post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, this is 20 times worse than 9-11 if you consider the scale based on the population of America and the population of Israel. And it's all just a short drive from us. It's like if there was a 9-11 and all of the country was situated in the tri-state area. Right. Okay. I want to let you go, but I do have to ask what's next. I mean, you have to just, I'm not asking you to pull out a crystal ball, but there's to be a fear for where we go in the next week and, and a fear for the young people of Gaza, kids, you know, that, that are there, the hostages that are there, the families, like what is the sense right now for like, not what is next as in 2025, but what's next like this next week, what is coming? So I think it's pretty certain at this point that Israel is going to launch a ground invasion into Gaza, which is completely unprecedented. It promises to bring untold amount of casualties, an untold amount of destruction. And that's just localized to Gaza. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of reservists who are stationed up north should the event that Hezbollah get involved in this conflict, even more than they have. There's already been a reports of shooting across the Lebanese border. So I think we're in for a extraordinarily difficult couple of days and couple of weeks. Look, first and foremost, there needs to be a humanitarian corridor opened in conjunction with Egypt and the United States. I feel very strongly about this because I feel and I can predict I'm not a military strategist, but this is just common knowledge at this point that what is going to happen in Gaza, this is what our defense minister recently said, what was will no longer be. This is going to be a event of enormous proportions. And if we can save as many civilians and human life, innocent human lives as possible, then the United States and Egypt need to be on top of that very soon. Civilians from southern Lebanon have already begun evacuating from their homes and moving further into the country. That is completely necessary because the IDF basically has a mandate right now to carry out justice on the people responsible for this in any way they want. And especially from the speech with Biden, we have assurance going in. How does Gaza even continue to exist after this? Uh, it's just very... Look... It's hard to imagine. I don't think it is going to, at least in the way that it did 
before this event. And I don't say that with anything but sadness and fear over what that means for the region in the future. How can people help? I know that you're involved in groups there. Are there groups they can support or donate to? or what? what yeah, there's a bunch of groups that you can donate to. The Friends of the IDF is a big one. There's also this program called Adopt a Safta that brings food to uh, elderly people who are isolated in Israel. And I'm sure you can find on social media, there's, there's so many organizations and donation drives that it's at this point a little bit overwhelming. But also just taking a stand with Israel or a stand against terrorism, at least, and the killing of innocents online, making your voice heard, sharing the message with your friends, that, that does a ton of good as well. Thank you, Blake. Hang in there. We're sending you our love. Appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you so much. Peace. Bye.